on the podcast with me today, Bonafide Farm Girl, former exotic dancer and entertainer, entrepreneur, yoga fiend, mother, and author of her memoir, The Butcher Shop Girl, Carmen Kissel Verrier. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jim. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Well, I want to sort of approach the Q&A here from the perspective of people who haven't read the book. Um, I'm sure a lot of people have, but also want to make sure that we sort of give people a little bit of a taste of what the book is about so that they understand and might be compelled to pick it up and read it. But um, the first thing I wanted to talk to you about, because a lot of my audience are artists themselves or entrepreneurs, talk to me a little bit about the process and mechanics about writing this book, bringing it to fruition. Um, one of the things that really struck me, and I'm about halfway through the book, I am going to finish it. It's very compelling. But one of the things that struck me is your attention to detail and these memories you had from, from childhood. Did you keep a journal as a child? Is that, or do you just have one of those photographic memories? Well, I find it for me, it's a lot easier to remember things that were a long time ago versus, you know, what happened last week, last Tuesday. So <laughs> I was able to uh, just take the, the best parts that would help frame the message that I was trying to deliver, which is how to accept yourself with complete vulnerability and how to overcome shame and regret and how you can use those, um, I guess, terrible emotions if you embrace them properly to craft a better life for yourself by embracing them with vulnerability. So for me, not everything made it into 20 years of a coming of age story because the book starts from when I'm, I'm quite young and it ends when I'm 21. So I'm in my 40s now and it took me about 20 years to really digest the contents of this book. Uh, what did I want to say? How did I want to say it? What's the main message? What kind of value is there for everybody to glean? So the construction process of writing is, it took me about three years to come up with a really great working manuscript. And in there, I started off by constructing just different scenes that would um, highlight the themes. And, you know, because how do you condense a coming of age journey into, you know, a digestible product for people to read? That's how you do it for there's so many different writing styles. Everybody has their own methodology and approach, just like with uh, any artistic medium, music, uh, painting, sculpting, all of that is, is come to by the artist with their own approach and their own systems they develop. So for me, starting off with uh, some of the, the most interesting parts of that journey was escaping a Bolivian cartel family when I was 19 as a, an exotic entertainer. And I start the book there and then I bring the reader. So on quite a hook and a high note. And yeah. I the, the book starts like an action movie. I love yeah, it. It really yeah. does. You know, you gotta, you gotta hook them. So then I take them back to the beginning so that they can understand how a regular girl from Northeastern Alberta, Prairie lands can end up in those situations. Um, in the meanwhile, it was a, an amazing coming of age journey to document for those that those young people who don't know where to turn, how to find themselves they feel lost. This book will definitely help you at least to feel better that brighter days are ahead if right. you need to be. Right. Now, now, in terms of the mechanics and the process of actually writing the book, putting it down on paper, what advice would you give to someone right now who might be listening who goes, you know what? 
I've got this amazing collection of stories, this, this tremendous life experience or tragic life experience. And either way, I'd like to encapsulate that. Obviously, they got to start writing. So tell us a little bit about the, the discipline associated with that process. And then how soon did you start to bring in outside professionals, editors and, and, and individuals like that to help you with the process and really refine it? Great questions. I, I do get asked that often. People are often, how do I go about this? What's my first single step to take? I would definitely recommend uh, if you feel like you can go it on your own, you have to extract those memories. You have to extract what it is you want to say from you. So really just keep a point form list. Uh, a lot of people use cue cards as well, just blank kitchen recipe cue cards. And write on the front something like uh, a scene that you think has an important message attached to it. Then on the back of the cue card, you could certainly write point form notes that you want to make it into that scene. That'll be details you remember. Um, opening up a rusty jar of memories from long ago is difficult. So sometimes we call it up in our mind space now, write it on the front of that piece of paper, and let it sit for a while on a shelf somewhere for a couple of weeks and just think about just those scenes and you'd be amazed what comes back for details. And then you can go back, write those down. Once you've got enough of those scenes, for me, this was my process. I had to next categorize them or put them in some sort of chronology that would make sense. So then I had all of this mishmash of, of things I wanted to say in story form scenes. Then I started to put them in a chronology that would make sense. So when you're an author um, you want, or a musician, uh, musical artists do this all the time. Maybe they explode out of the gate with a really high tempo that captivates you. Then they bring it down. Then they raise them up. So the same thing with a reader's flow when they're diving into your material. What do you want to do? Do you want to catch them in the beginning? Do you want a slow burn that goes up to an apex, then a drop off? So you get to decide that. I decided to hook them right off the beginning with one of the most interesting scenes, which was that escape from that Bolivian cartel family and then bring them down because it was just so wild. Um, I'm just so glad you're still here. Yeah, it was, you know, and when you're 19, that's what Dr. Lori uh, Batisto and I talked about last night in Montreal was when you're 19, you know, obviously you're so impressionable, you're easy to manipulate, you're easy for agents in that type of world to prey upon and if you don't have any real good guides to help you along the way, you could get very lost or, or in a very dangerous situation. Luckily for me, I had a couple of really good, you know, what I would say, bad bitch girlfriends that were, you know, Hell's Angels affiliates. And they helped me navigate this world with an iron spine. And they took me under their wing and really just took care of me. So you'll meet Shay in the book. Um, and she's just so, she's just so wonderful without she's her. She's the queen of tough love. Oh, absolutely. And just, just, uh, what an amazing person. So thankfully I had people like her in my corner to help me with that. Um, but yeah, back to the construction process, write down what you can spend some time thinking about it. If you need to enlist the help of a, a writing coach, I highly recommend people do that. So I did for about seven months. I had a really wonderful woman named Melinda who was from South Carolina. And she just helped me to, because uh, I am a professional writer in my everyday life with my agency work, but I'm not, I'm a good storyteller, 
But when it comes down to copy editing or chronology, I was kind of over my head there. So she really helped me to digest that. We would make weekly goals, monthly goals and targets. And then in about eight months, we had a working manuscript that was ready to now start shopping to different publishing houses who wanted to pick up this story. So Friesen Press uh, engaged with me right away. Uh, I, it was important for me to find a Canadian publisher for my and first you just book. sent manuscripts out along with, uh, you know, letters of intent and interest and, and sort of like a shotgun approach and just seeing what kind of interest would be gauged once you had the manuscript presentable. Yes, absolutely. Right. So, And it was presentable enough to me. It was still very much considered a working draft. So by the time Friesen Press picked it up and I engaged with them, then came the real heavy lifting, which was copy editing. So it went through three, four rounds of different editors within Friesen Press reviewing it and honing it down to what you're reading now. So, gosh, like by the time I finished composing it, making that manuscript and about four or five rounds of copy editing, I was like, I don't even think I want to read this story again. Like I was just so immersed in it. It was overwhelming and it was so thankful to have freeze and press there to guide me as well and then they took it's, it to publishing it's very similar to the process that an artist would go through in terms of um you know writing a song uh you know that whole construction process and and that genesis process and then getting involved with a producer and a label and people who sort of help refine the project to a point where you can take it to market. Right. So probably very similar, even if you know how to sing and you know how to write songs, you still need a producer to help create the final project in most cases. I mean, some artists produce their own work, but you know, they're few and far between. So uh, I think it's smart to talk about the recruitment process because um it's a great story and I know you're you're very articulate and your your voice really shines through in those stories so I could tell this was a memoir that you had a lot of heavy lifting uh in in terms of the creative process rather than hiring a ghostwriter and telling your story to them and having them translate it for you yes absolutely and that that's a route that a lot of people take as well because, well, not everybody is a singer, a writer, uh, you know, they have other talents. Maybe they have a great story to tell, but they need that help. So I highly recommend you seek out what you need, wherever it is that you're stuck at with your process, you know, ask yourself, who can help me with this? What type of professional could get me to the next step and just keep going. So discipline, big part of creating a book or anything worthwhile to share value with others. You have to, if you were just to write when you felt like it, you would never get it done. So I so how often would you write? Every day. And sometimes that's painful. Sometimes you just, you're not. How long it. every day? Like an hour, two no, hours? I, I set myself 30... a, a word goal. So I would try to hit at least 750 words a day. So, and, and that sometimes that's rambling. Sometimes you're just not in it. You can tell your mind space isn't there. So find the right time of the day that you feel like you're synapsing the most. Some people that's the morning. Sometimes that's late at night before they go to bed, whatever that time is for you, sit down and just make yourself a goal. Um, Maybe one paragraph. And if you have one paragraph and you're feeling it that day, it'll lead to two and three, and then you'll be more productive that day. The next day might be a write-off where you're you're staring. I stared at a blank piece of paper sometimes on those days just to, you know, I just felt frustrated and I have nothing to say. I have nothing that's really coming to me and that's part of the process. But I realized that if you just make that commitment every day, like people with um, 
really serious fitness goals. I mean, this is something you could understand as well. There's not every day you feel like hitting it and hitting it with this intensity, but you, you made yourself a commitment and you want to honor that. So no different. Sit down. So you you kind of come up with a daily minimum, you know, it's like, this is what I'm going to do every day, come hell or high water. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, that translates so well over the fitness conversation for sure. So Another component of this book, other than than telling some amazing stories, which have some amazing lessons embedded within them, is you talk about your complex relationship with shame and how you use that as fuel to define, refine your character. And I, I just think, I think that's such an important conversation and such an interesting perspective on shame. We live in a world right now where everybody wants to hide their true selves and only show the best of themselves on social media. And I understand that, but you really wrestled with coming to terms with, with the self-loathing at times that you had. Um, and, and then using that as fire in your belly to accomplish other things in life. Tell us a little bit about that process. Yes. So I'm in my early 40s. And I found as I was approaching my 40s, this story, like I said, ended when I was 21 years old. So I spent from 21 to now wanting to keep it quiet. And the more time that went on, I loved how everybody would forget about it. It was old news. Um, So many people wanted to talk to me about that time in my life if they heard a little bit about it. Like even my young younger cousins in my family. It was all just so secretive. And I never wanted to unpack that because it was too, too painful. And I really didn't know how to context it anyway. And I just wished it would just go away. Then as I started to approach my 40s, with a lot of goading and well-intended friends saying, you've got a great story, you need to, to tell that it's original, it's unique, nobody's ever heard anything like this. Please get better with yourself to tell it because we want to hear it. We want to read it. We want to see it. And I kind of thought, oh, you're crazy. Enough of you guys. And I just started to get close to my forties and I didn't care anymore. I was more interested in seeking the truth. That also kind of came about on my yoga journey uh, quite a few years ago, embracing vulnerability, embracing shame and realizing that shame and regret, everybody has it. Everybody has something they're not proud of. Everybody has something they wish they never did or could go back and do again. But if you come full circle to that, you'll realize that, no, all of those things help make you who you are. And we know that. We hear that all the time. But to feel it and embrace it is a totally different arena. So I did that. And because there's two things, if you want to commit to writing a memoir that you must have. One is that it has to be interesting. Because, I mean, if you don't have a very interesting life, I guess you better be a real good writer because that might be a bit of a tough read. So it needs to be interesting and it needs to be true. So that's the basis of a memoir, those two things. And you can't have a boring book. So you better embrace vulnerability because the things that you don't want to talk about are the exact things that people want to read. Well, it's courage. Right. And people, we're, we're all, we're tribal beings. We are drawn to courageous human beings who are willing to be vulnerable. Right. And, and I think that as it pertains to shame, like you, you probably, do you listen to Brene Brown or read any of her stuff? Yeah. She does some great work in that space. Yeah. But 
as it pertains to shame, how much of it in, in your world and your experience was sort of self-imposed versus the shame you would feel by telling the story with the expectation of judgment of others. Do you see what I mean? Like there's a bit of a difference. Like when I fuck up and it's me and it's just me, I know I've got some reconciling to do with myself, but to do that in a public arena or to allow other people to judge you, I mean, that's another step up. That's another level of courage. So talk about a little bit between the differences of shame, self-imposed versus societally imposed. Everybody is too hard on themselves. We think that other people are judging us more than they are. They're not. Sure, there's judgment out there, but we are our own worst enemies. I noticed that nobody felt this type of shame for me. That was all me. I, that, that, that's me putting that myself in that prison. So I guess realizing that is important as well, that what you believe um, is happening out there with other people's judgment is likely not true. And really, how much attention should you give to that anyway? What other people think of you is none of your business. George Martin, I believe, a philosopher says that um, once you accept yourself, flaws and all, no one can use that against you. It's incredibly empowering. So I went from flipping the axis of shame and vulnerability and regret to empowerment because now it's out there. It's all right. out there. There's so many things that I've admitted to or shared that, you know what, I feel so much more empowered by the truth. And this ties into Brene Brown as well. She's a fantastic advocate, very much a source of inspiration for me to do that, as well as two other memoirists that you would probably know because you're in that world is uh, Jeanette Walls and the Glass Castle. Uh, her story in 2003, very peculiar, unusual coming of age. The things that she wrote in there shocked me. Like she was just so, so vulnerable. And she was applauded for the, the bravery and the courage that really inspired me. Uh, another person was Tara Westover and educated. This woman was raised you know, by Mormon fundamentalists in the Utah mountains and never stepped foot in a classroom until she was 17 years old and went on to earn a PhD from Cambridge. So her talking about this Mormon fundamentalist upbringing, how she escaped that, how she turned it into a better life for herself. Those two women in particular and their stories really fueled my fire to have enough courage to write The Butcher Top Girl. That's great because we all need some level of... Uh... Uh, inspiration from the outside world at times, right? Like to force us to take that next step. You also had a very complicated relationship with your mother. Yeah. And, and I think that sometimes our relationships with our parents really defines, at least in the initial stages, our ability to navigate our own self-esteem and or, you know, have an abundance of that or a lack of it. Uh, Tell us a little bit about how your relationship with your mom affected you, especially through your most formative years being a teenager. Yes, uh, my mother and I's relationship was definitely contentious from day one. I feel like I just never knew her very much because she was such a worker. Um, Her family comes from a very prominent agricultural family in our area. So my grandfather, Pierre, a smart, shrewd businessman, very, very keen. He had a vertically operation, a vertical operated business in agriculture. So he had this large 
ranch land. He had this large feedlot. He owned the only auction house in our area that serviced about five counties. And the missing piece to that operation was a butcher shop or a slaughterhouse or an abattoir. And my mom was just going through a divorce when I was six. And she was working all the time at this place that my grandfather set up for her. She as well is very keen, driven. I'm sure you know those those types of families that um, capitalism, entrepreneurialism, every single one of my mom's six brothers and sisters are very successful, driven by this patriarch energy, which was coming from my grandfather. Now, I, I, I grew up on a cattle ranch and hard work was yeah. 100% the thing that you were rewarded for. If That's you could work yourself uh, to the bone, that made you, uh, you know, that, that got you celebrated within the family circle quite quickly. So it's the same sort of mindset in, in the world that you came from. So not a lot of hugs, not a lot of cookies. My mom was not your regular mom. So when she separated from my father and my brother and I found ourselves in her full-time care and we were raised in the butcher shop. So we learned about my mom through working side by side with her, just like everybody else in my family. It's, you know, head down, ass up, you work, you don't ask questions. And there's not a lot of room for emotional connection or development there. Not only that, I just really don't think she had any time. She really and just- there was, a, there was a time where that, meant that the practicality of that approach was almost uh, uh, part and parcel with survival. Yes. Like if you read about the stories of the late 1800s and early 1900s, it's like there wasn't a lot of time for, Bugs. you know, no bullshit. Bug. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. What would be defined as bullshit, but actually it's really important stuff. But Absolutely. it was like it was it was all focused on production and making sure that you had your shit together before winter hit and the animals survival. were taken care of. And, you know, all of that was about survival and livelihood. So I understand where it came from, but you're right. It, it seems to be lingering on. Uh, especially through um, uh, the agricultural world and some of the family farms. And that seems to be a generational thing where it's like, hey, we can uh, have fun as a family, but first we got to get the work done. I'm not so sure that's a bad thing. I'm actually quite grateful for that as I've gotten older in life. Yes, absolutely. So I've had to balance that out as well because I adopted that. That's how you I survived in my family and that's how I survived in my life and I took care of myself. So I took that mentality when I was an exotic entertainer. And that's why it was easy for me to not fall into drugs. It's not like I didn't dabble or experiment as a young person too. But it wasn't really my thing because I felt like I didn't even really identify with a lot of these entertainers. I feel like everybody comes to these types of worlds from all kinds of backgrounds. And mine was just very atypical. I did have a good relationship with my father. That's not common in that world. I was a take no prisoners mercenary. You know, it's weird when you have that pretty privilege and you're the one who's exploiting for financial gain. That's very much how I looked at myself in that role. Whereas maybe some of my other colleagues are addicted and desperate and sliding down a very dangerous path. So for me, it was easy to walk that line. I had some really good guides, as I told you, Um, even a great big love interest, um, a fellow named Tom, who helped rescue me out of Bolivia. And then we later went on to have a two year fantastic relationship in the United States, you know? So um, those types of people really helped me and they accepted me more than anything. That's, that's what I really learned was that other than my grandmothers, I never had that fit in 
girl experience. I looked like a boy till I was 12. You know, I was a farm kid, um, pretty rough around the edges. So I was- And you here. never got that that matriarchal excess, or, or sorry, uh, matriarchal ex, um, acceptance from your mom, right? Yeah. Like that was something that she sort of oh, held yeah. over your head for a long time. Yeah, I'd say it came from my grandmothers who I largely- identify as my real mamas, you know, my real moms and uh, my aunts. They were all beautiful, glamorous people who took me under their wing as well. So I'm happy to say now that my mom and I have come, I would like to say pretty full circle. I respect a lot of things about her that I couldn't see when I was a teen as very much of us have a hard time looking at our parents with the level of respect that they probably really do deserve. And, and she does, uh, she was thrust into a situation at a very young age and she did her best to navigate it too. So I don't hold any of that against her. And I'm, I'm really proud of the person she is. She taught me the value of hard work. She taught me the value of depending on yourself and not anybody else. So for a girl, that's important to learn, you know, girls are, can be beautiful and kind of maybe just coast on their good looks. And there was none of that going on at the butcher shop. None of that. No, no. And uh, that's a really interesting point you bring up that as you reconcile your own shame, it becomes much easier to forgive the people around you who may have been a source of it at some point in your life. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a really good point. So, And then you can reconcile with them and have a relationship with them. If you want to, right? And I think it just goes to show somebody's level of maturity. Can you meet me at that table? Can can we put this aside? Because I really do care for you as a person. I want to know you. That takes an incredible amount of, of maturity, I do believe. And now I really want to tie in this topic because it affects your industry. It affects my industry is cancel culture. So cancel culture is rooted in shame. I'm very disappointed to see this phenomena kind of gaining steam where we don't like what somebody says. So we want to try to shame them. We want to cancel them, but really you're shaming that person for maybe who they are, what they believe. And we're getting so far away from just embracing other perspectives to the point where it's starting to harm what we have access to because right next to cancel culture is censorship. And as soon as you have censorship, you have a really deplorable society in my opinion yeah it's a it's a slippery slope right because i'm a big believer in accountability i i always say you've got to temper the idea of free speech with the fact that it's not free from consequences right so you're going to say what you're going to say but just like 200 years ago in the town square you may have someone showing up at your house that night to confront you on what you said earlier that day however my big concern with cancel culture, and I'm glad you brought it up because I want to get into your sort of nonconformist, more heterodox opinions about women's empowerment, which I think is really interesting and, and important that we discuss that. But as it pertains to cancel culture, the other thing we do is we we have this tendency sometimes to ostracize people who are already either embracing some corrupt uh, beliefs or, you know, they're already not necessarily mentally or emotionally healthy. And now what we've done is we've, we've attacked them, shamed them further, pushed them away from the tribe, and made them even more dangerous, potentially, because now they have nothing to fucking lose. So um, I just think I understand how important it is to ensure we have accountability within our communication and and that, you know, people can be held accountable to a degree. I get that. But on the other side of it, I go, if, 
if we're all, you know, if, if humanity is sort of one big tribe, what's the answer if somebody embraces a, a, a belief structure that's corrupted? Do we push that person out and pretend they don't exist and, and then force them to develop a community with more people with extreme ideas? Or do we find a way to engage them, find the most redeeming aspects of them, and, and at some point welcome them back, right? Like there needs to be a pathway of redemption. And that's and, and there needs to be to a degree to a, a statute of limitations, you know, like when you see people getting canceled for shit they tweeted in, you know, 2009, it's like, come on. Yeah. Yeah, you know, none of us are the same person we were 11, you know, 10 years ago. So it, it's fair sometimes to ask somebody like the Kevin Hart thing with, with the Academy Awards or the Oscars, you know, where he tweeted out something that was deemed as, uh, um, you know, anti-gay back in 2009. And I think it's fair for the Oscars, you know, whoever that decision making committee was to go, hey, listen, what did you mean by this? And have your views changed? That's yeah. fair. But to go, fuck you, you're off the show. We don't want to have anything to do with you. I mean, it didn't hurt Kevin Hart, obviously, but there are lots of people out there who do get hurt by these things. And so I think it's an important issue to talk about and bring up because you're right. Like, I, it breaks my heart when I see members of our music community being attacked by, you know, and dogpiled on by other people because they express a viewpoint that, you know, might be fucked up, but but honestly might have some modicum of truth to it. Like there's a reason they got to that place. So let's try and understand how they got there rather than condemning them and forcing them to build a community around other people who might think the same way and might have their own problems that they're wrestling with. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So I think what you point out wisely is that you encourage debate. Cancel culture does not encourage debate. Cancel culture is a karate chop to the idea and the person and leaves no room for debate, no room for understanding, no room for, hey, do you think you could submit a statement that clarifies your stance? Yeah, and it, it encourages forced complicity. Exactly. And, and it just shuts down the debate. And if we lose debate, we lose our ability, our number one favorite tool to try to bridge that gap with somebody we don't understand. Debate is what does that. So I'm so disappointed to see that take over in academia as well. Like my, my young son here is graduating in uh, this year and he got accepted early into poly science, political science at the University of Alberta. And I'm seriously worried for him because I, I think he's such a big open-minded spirit, a little sponge ready to go. And if he runs into just one paradigm of ideology while he's there, well, how disappointing is that? You know, yeah. your own wrong think or group think or right think. Right now, I just see us living a bit of a 1984 George Orwell nightmare unfolding before us. And if we do have to talk about this, so thank you for bringing it up. I really just think debate will help us. If we could just bring well, back- Debate, debate is, is, is part and parcel to the journey of getting to the truth, right? Or getting to better ideas. Yes. Um, and Cass uh, just shuts it down. There's no was, debate. I was reading recently on the um, the doctor. I can't I can't remember his name right now from from Hungary uh, in the late uh, 19th century who came up with the the conceptualization of uh, of 
microbiomes and, and bacteria. And, and at the time, women who were giving birth in hospitals were you know, dying at a, at a ridiculous rate. I believe 20% of women who gave birth in, in hospitals around the late 1800s were dying because doctors at that point didn't believe in the validity of washing their hands. And he was attacked and challenged and it took 12 years for the medical community to finally accept his findings. And I'm not getting all the details right on this. Yes. My brain's not quite what it was 20 years ago, but, but that really spoke to me because it's like, that guy had a heterodox opinion that was against the establishment at the time. And he was attacked, he was shamed, but he was fucking right. It's the same thing with Copernicus who got jailed because he said, you know, not everything rotates around the world. The world rotates as part of this universe and we're all rolling around the sun. He gets jailed for that. But later on, of course, it's revealed that he was correct. If we are going to find the truth, if we're going to get to better ideas, we need to be able to debate and weed out the bad ideas. And the only way we can do that is by reserving the right for people to say stupid shit, you know, because sometimes that's going to happen or, or embrace bad ideas. And then it's like, if you challenge those bad ideas with compassion, empathy, and the desire to help people see a new way, rather than attacking them just to fucking score points with your pals on social media. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you on all that. I, I think uh, one of the reasons I launched this podcast is I wanted to have long form discussions with people about, about life in general and topics like this, but also some of these very complex issues that we come up against in the music industry. Yes. and. And it's like, let's talk these things through in long form. And I'm not saying that I'm going to be right and I'm going to get my mind changed, but like there's some sort of beauty in that because it represents growth. Yes. I love that so much. So we, you talk a, a bit about the court of public opinion. What I find happening with censorship and cancel culture is that it's a tiny minority with a special interest that is the loudest chirper typically in the back seats usually if you actually opened it up with debate you include everyone in on that discussion and you can get a far broader view of what actually people think so we got to watch debate is always good include more people into the discussion more groups more uh interests more opposite views and mm -hmm. create that safe space so that's what you're doing on this podcast jim you're creating a space for everybody to join into that arena to have these discussions where there's there's no um, ostracization going on, there's no uh, castaway, and that's how we can truly grow and learn. So I think we got to watch out to that many special interest groups. Uh, the media has certainly been accused of this as well. The media, you know, how much of it is true that they report? We're all suspicious right now of what goes on with them because we know who funds them. We know how they live. We know that CBC perhaps is struggling with viewership. You know, is that is that influencing the way that they're reporting their headlines? All of us are not stupid and people don't like to be considered stupid. So when a special interest group or a government or even an international conglomerate is trying to buy these narratives we're on to that and that's infuriating and it needs to stop so they're, yeah, getting, they're getting challenged right now right back so you see all of us kind of bailing off of twitter recently because 
you know, I, I, I'm not a fan of cancel culture. I don't want to support that. I don't want to support anything that leads to censorship because I would not be able to publish this book in Canada without a free press. So it's the number one most important thing to writers and creationists. They need that freedom to express. And if they don't get it there, they're not going to support those entities that try to shut them down. So we just turn away. We see a natural turn away from news we don't like. We see a natural turn away from platforms that we just don't believe the direction they're going in. So that's the court of public opinion. That's really powerful. It's, in my opinion, however, always being hijacked by some kind of special interest group or corporation. You you have some very non-conforming opinions as it pertains to the modern feminist movement. I mean, you are a big advocate for female empowerment. Uh, That shines through the pages of this book, for sure. Uh, Obviously, you've been very successful in your businesses, but you talk about topics that that aren't exactly popular to talk about, like like female toxicity, right, or feminine toxicity rather than masculine toxicity, which is like a a, a, you you broach these topics in a manner that don't follow the, the the doctrines of the current hashtag yas queen hashtag boss babe female empowerment um uh doctrines how much resistance have you received in that and and where did that all come from where you were able to go listen like let's just fucking be real here for a minute and talk about the fact that you know hashtag believe all women is probably a crazy idea and here's why even though that's not popular right now exactly so what people are always blown away to hear is that Females can be just as, if not more, exploitive than men. Yes, they can. There are, like, ask any single dad who's trying to get access to his child and his baby mama is just not having it. Ask anybody who has been duped and taken to the cleaners by a gorgeous, good-looking femme fatale. This exists, and we need to talk about that because those women are killers, And they're no different than somebody who's a male who's exploiting all kinds of females. It does exist out there. It's just shocking. People in society don't like to see that. It it makes them uncomfortable. But it does exist. So if you're a female, like I was at 21 years old, I had brand new breast implants. I'm making so much money. Every single day, I'm making so much money. Thousands. And my ego is the size of Texas. And I know it. And I know the power that that possesses over anything, anyone, you name it. So um, I went full circle with that journey. I wouldn't say I loved to exploit, but I had a means to an end and I had a financial goal and I was going to get there no matter right. what. And I Yeah, I, I talk a, a lot about the, the difference in managing artists between manipulating and influencing, yes. right? And manipulating has a malicious connotation to it. Uh, influencing people to be a better version of themselves, that's just good leadership, right? And, and so as it pertains to this uh, discussion about the fact that, that some women can uh, go down that road of manipulating to get things that they want rather than focusing on their own competence or their own assets, um, have you met resistance uh, so far to that idea or um, are we just not quite there yet uh, and it's probably coming yeah. down the road like where where's that been for you in terms of championing the ideas that aren't necessarily popular 
Well, it depends who I'm talking to. If I'm talking to typically a powerful male, I notice it makes them very squirmish. They don't like it because it's the number one thing that's a threat to them. Typically, if I'm talking to a female who needs a big confidence boost, who's naturally attracted to powerful females, she thinks it's the best thing ever. So it really just matters who you're talking to. Um, so, so men are, sorry, men are, are they feel dis, discomforted by the fact that, that there's a realization that women can be manipulative or well, I just want to make sure I got clarity on that. that they will be manipulative, that they can run into someone who might be just as exploitive as they are, because I think we mirror. So if uh, like back then, obviously I'm not that person now, I'm, you know, 22 years older, married, you know, I've learned a lot about life. So, and the error of many of my ways, but just put yourself back in that coming of age time when you're figuring yourself out and you notice that, whoa, I've never had confidence. Now I finally have some or what I perceive to be. And how am I going to wield this? How am I going to use this for my, my gain, which was for me, it was all mercenary. I want to make a lot of money because my value system growing up in my family was hard work equals dollars, wealth equals success. And it really wasn't any more complicated than that. Whoever has the most money has the most power. That's kind of how my, my family dynamic was. And, and you can come by it honestly and work hard, but still the end re result was that financial success was more applauded or respected, even if it wasn't talked about, you could tell. So for me, I, I kind of adopted that along the way and thought, hey, how can I navigate this strange new world I'm in, um, being an exotic entertainer? And how can I use this to, as a means to an end? I didn't have kids. I didn't have a family. I was pretty much a wild child doing whatever I want with a pocket full of cash and, uh, you know, your best body at 21 years old. So you know, I definitely played in that arena. It made a lot of people uncomfortable. But I noticed it was mostly maybe other men who were as well exploiting their their assets, that that's who it made uncomfortable because I think we saw we saw each other in each other. Do you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, you revealed a part of their character that they weren't comfortable with with confronting at that time. And them to me too. And them to me too. So I found that that's the number one type of fellow who was never attracted to me. How much of the, the toxic, manipulative aspect of your ego that you possessed, especially when you were younger, how much of that was driven by uh, vindictiveness or revenge uh, for the fact that maybe you feel that you didn't get what you were entitled to as a child in terms of love and acceptance and like how much of that was sort of like a, a fuck you back to the world because I think sometimes that's how it manifests like a lot of people are you know they're sad and they're hurt inside and they don't know how to reconcile that and they're not ready to wrestle with the shame so they just go out and they just they just create more pain yeah and and, and and I understand it. You know, I get it. I, I see where that comes from, but we all know it's a zero sum game. How much of that was driven by a fact that you felt like you got, you know, maybe not a fair shake or, or not the best hand you could have been dealt early in life. And you wanted to exact a little revenge on, on the parts of the world where you had the power to do so. I love that question. I've never been asked that. That's a great one. I would say for me, I've never had an evil heart or a, a revengeful vengeful heart. If it was something that happened to somebody I love, I would probably slit their throat. But for me, I felt like when you grow up in, in abuse and toxicity, especially with your mother, 
I, I don't find I, I just wanted to get away from her. I didn't want to hurt her, but I also didn't respect her because of who she was and how she treated me. So I felt like even though I knew my decisions to become an exotic entertainer um, and to explore that lifestyle were maybe unorthodox, I was fine with them. And I didn't care what she thought because I didn't respect her. But I didn't want to hurt her either. So I kind of just occupied that weird space of just leave me alone. You do you. And I'm going to do me over here. And I really don't care what it makes you feel like because I don't respect you. So right. I mean, and, and I think I think more what I'm asking is, was there an indirect um, vindictiveness? So I understand that, you know, you you harbored some feelings against your mom. That makes sense. Uh, you weren't, you didn't have the mechanisms available at the time to take uh, what you might have felt was righteous vengeance uh, on her. But how much of that parlayed into your personality and, and, and created some bitterness within you that maybe made other people in your life collateral damage at the time? I feel like that was possible. I don't feel like I ever had quite a vindictive heart at all or, or really wanted to seek out revenge. What I wanted to do was create my own independence right. and I would be willing to do whatever kind of to do that. So that brought me to those paths. And I loved more than anything those years, not communicating with my family. I barely saw them. I would come home just occasionally to get my passport stamped so that I could spend another six months in the United States. So I found when I came home, it was, um, I, I missed them. I wanted to be around my grandparents and my, my family. They were always so wonderful. And even then, so accepting to have me back at home. They could see that I wasn't strung out on drugs. They could see that I had all this money and I had all these adventures. And, you know, I became a source of fascination. But I also wanted to protect them. I didn't want to tell them anything. I, I certainly didn't want to mention that I had friends that, you know, I regarded like family in the Hells Angels. I certainly didn't want to tell them anything that was off color or that I knew they wouldn't be able to comprehend because they're just wonderful salt of the earth people. So I, I spent a lot of time shielding that from them. And only afterwards, like really many of these stories in this book are things I have never talked about for 20 years. So, you know, now that I'm in my forties and uh, both my all my grandparents are passed away now. I, I really wanted to wait until they were gone, maybe to do this type of a project because I respect them so much that I just think they would be too, too many generations in between us for them to fully understand some of the concepts in this book. And, you know, like if you love something, you want to protect it. You don't, you don't want anything bad or crazy thoughts to come at it. You, you love it. You want to put a bubble around it. So I feel like I, I really had that approach with my family more than anything. I felt like I was the rotten egg who's doing this, that, and that over there. And I didn't want them to know about it, see it or anything. And when they did see me, I just wanted them to see that I was happy and healthy and fine. Yeah, there's this interesting phenomenon as it pertains to abuse, especially when you experience it as a child where... Part of you wants to tell the story, but part of you doesn't want to reveal the vulnerability associated with why you were abused or not the why so much, but but the process of it and how it affected you. How long did it take you to come to terms with that aspect? Because you're quite open about the abuse that you suffered, um, particularly at the hands of your mother. and And then how did you... How did you process that? Because you had to be tempted to sort of embrace this very 
you know, you talk about things that are popular today, this victim mindset, right? And weaponize the abuse to solicit attention rather than turning it into a story of vindication and empowerment. So let's talk first a little bit about like, okay, I've got to tell this story. And this, this story means I could, could hurt the feelings of some people around me who are still alive and in this world today. But in order to give people an honest assessment of where I am, I have to tell them where I came from. And then how did you resist the temptation to not make it about you being a victim, more so make it about, hey, listen, like these things happened, but because of these things, here's where I am and you can do the same. Yeah. So victim culture, victim mentality is something that I'm absolutely and completely allergic to. Before I could even label it as that, as a young person, I never saw myself as a victim. I still don't because victim status is a perspective. You can certainly acknowledge that things happened to you that were negative, that were not of your doing. You can do that. And you can feel sorry for that. I think everybody should. You got to go through those feelings. Most of the time, nobody wants to feel those feelings. It's difficult. It's painful. It reminds us of terrible times. So we spend our lives coping, um, medicating, avoiding, escaping, just so that we don't feel. So I was never afraid to just sit down and feel those feelings. And on the other side of those feelings, you kind of see that, yeah, that happened to me. That wasn't right. That was not by my doing. I'm sorry that happened to me. But do I want to let that define me and everything I do for the rest of my life? That just seemed abhorrent to me. I just couldn't imagine 